Chapter Six of Bullets and Billets by Bruce Bairn's Father. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six: The Transport Farm, Fleeced by the Flemish, Riding, Nearing Christmas. It was about nine p.m. when we turned into the courtyard of the farm. My sergeant saw to the unlimbering and dismissed the section, whilst I went into the farm and dismantled myself of all my tackle, such as revolver field-glass, great-coat, haversacks, etc. My servant had, of course, preceded me, and by the time I made a partial attempt at cleaning myself he had brought in a meal of sorts and laid it on the oilcloth-covered table by the stove. I was now joined by the transport officer and the regimental quartermaster. They lived at this farm permanently and only came to the trenches on occasional excursions. They had both had a go at the nasty part of warfare, though, before this, so although consumed with a sneaking envy, I was full of respect for them. We three had a very merry and genial time together. We now had something distinctly resembling a breakfast, a lunch, and a dinner each day. The transport officer took a lively interest in the efforts of Messrs. Fortnum and Mason, and thus added generously to our menus. It was a glorious feeling pushing open the door of that farm and coming in from all the wet, darkness, mud, and weariness of four days in the trenches. After the supper I disappeared into the back kitchen place and did what was possible in the shaving and washing line. The Belgian family were all herded away in here, as their front rooms were now our exclusive property. I have never quite made out what the family consisted of, but approximately, I should think, mother and father, and ten children. I am pretty certain about the children, as about half a platoon stood around me whilst shaving, and solemnly watched me with dull, brown, Flemish eyes. The father kept in the background, resting, I fancy, from his usual day's work of hiding unattractive turnips in enormous numbers under mounds of mud, the only form of farming industry which came under my notice in Flanders. The mother, however, was all there in more senses than one. She was of about observation balloon proportions, and had an unerring eye for the main chance. Her telegraphic address, I should imagine, was Fleesome. She had one sound commercial idea, i.e., charge as much as you can for everything they want, hide everything they do want, and slowly collect any property in the way of food they have in the cellar so that in the future there shall be no lack of bully and jam in our farm at any rate. They had one farm laborer, a kind of epileptic who I found out gave his services in return for being fed. No pay. He will regret this contract of his in time, as the food in question was bully beef and plum and apple jam, with an occasional change to macanachi and apple and plum jam. That store in the cellar absolutely precludes him from any change from this diet for many years to come. Of course, I must say his work was not such as would be classed amongst the skills or intellectual trades. It was, apparently, to pump all the accumulated drainage from a subterranean vault out into the yard in front about twice a week, the rest of his time being taken up by assisting at the hiding of the turnips. After I had washed and shaved under the critical eyes of Angel, Rachel, Andre and company, I retired into an inner chamber which had once been an apple store, and went to bed on a straw mattress in the corner. Pajamas at last, and an untroubled sleep. 
Occasionally in the night one would wake, and listening at the open window would hear the distant rattle of rifle fire far away beyond the woods. These four days at the transport farm were days of wallowing and rest. There was, of course, certain work to be done in connection with the machine-gun department, such as overhauling and cleaning the guns and drilling the sections at intervals, but the evenings and nights were a perfect joy after those spent in the trenches. One could walk about the fields nearby, could read, write letters, and sleep as much as one liked, and, if one wished, walk a ride over to see friends at the other billets. Ah, yes, ride. I am sorry to say that riding was not, and is not, my forte. Unfortunate this, as the machine-gun officer is one of the few privileged to have a horse. I was entitled to ride to the trenches and ride away from them and during our rest ride wherever I wanted to go. But these advantages, so coveted by my horseless pals in the regiment, left me cold. I never will be any good at the Ot Ecole Act, I'm sure, although I made several attempts to get a liking for the subject in France. When the final day came for our departure to the trenches again, I rode from that transport form. Riding in England or in any civilized country is one thing and riding in those barren, shell-torn wastes of Flanders is another. The usual darkness, rain, and mud pervaded the scene when the evening came for our return journey to the trenches. My groom, curse him, had not forgotten to saddle the horse and bring it round. There it was, standing gaunt and tall in front of the paraded machine-gun section. With my best equestrian demeanor I crossed the yard, and hauling myself up on to my horse, choked out a few commands to the section, and sallied forth on to the road towards the trenches. Thank heaven I didn't go into the cavalry. The roads about the part we were performing in were about two yards wide and a precipitous ditch at each side. In the middle all sorts and conditions of holes punctuated their long winding length. Add to this the fact that you are either meeting or being passed by a motor lorry every ten minutes, and you will get an idea of the conditions under which riding takes place. Well, anyway, during the whole of my equestrian career in France I never came off. I rode along in front of my section balancing on this ship of the desert of mine, past all the same landmarks, cracked houses, windmills, estaminets, etc., I experienced innumerable tense moments when my horse, as frequently happened, took me for a bit of a circular tour in an adjacent field, so as to avoid some colossal motor lorry with one headlight of about a million candle power, which would suddenly roar its way down our single narrow road. At last we got to the dumping ground spot again, the spot where we horsemen have to come to earth and walk, and where everything is unbailed from the limbers. Here we were again on the threshold of the trenches. This monotonous, dreary routine of in and out of the trenches had to be gone through many, many times before we got to Christmas Day. But during that pre-Christmas period there was one outstanding feature above the normal dangerous dreariness of the trenches. That was a slight affair in the nature of our attack on the 18th of December. So in the next chapter I will proceed to outline my part in this passage of arms. End of chapter 6 Recording by Philip Gould.